0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In today's episode, we're gonna be talking all about the science of sexual fantasies. I'm talking about this because my book, Tell Me What You Want, is being released in paperback edition this month, and I thought it would be fun to tell you a bit about the story behind that book and some of the key things I learned in studying the sexual fantasies of more than 4,000 Americans from across the country. I'm also going to tell you a bit about how writing this book completely changed the course of my career. I have a lot of fascinating information to share with you, and I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion, so let's get to it. The origins of Tell Me What You Want (laughs) trace back many years. And in fact, I had never planned on writing this book, let alone any books. It's something that just kind of happened. And so it all started when I was attending the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality conference in 2013 or 2014. That was one of the first times that I had attended this conference. And one of the things that they do every year is they have a networking luncheon. And I didn't know that many people at the conference at that time, but I went and I sat down next to one of my friends and there was an open seat next to me somebody else came by and sat there and we got to talking and it turned out that he was an editor at playboy magazine so i started telling him a bit about this blog that i had been running for a while called sex and psychology and how the goal was really to take scientific research and to translate it in a way that is educational and entertaining for a general audience and he said hey maybe you should come write for me sometime So after the conference, I followed up with him and I pitched him an article about cuckolding fantasies. These are fantasies where people are imagining their partner having sex with someone else. And this was something that I didn't know that much about, but I thought could make for a really interesting piece for an outlet like Playboy, and my editor agreed. So I got to work on writing all about the psychology of cuckolding. And one of the things that I had to do for that article was to actually go and watch a lot of cuckolding porn, because like I said, I didn't know a lot about this particular sexual interest. And so yes, sometimes I actually get paid to watch porn for a living. But anyway, I wrote this article about cuckolding and sort of how popular this fantasy is and how Google searches for it have been increasing. And just sort of looking at why so many people seem To be drawn to it and why it is such a popular term on porn sites, right? It's actually one of the most frequently searched out terms on Pornhub and a lot of these other big tube sites. So I wrote this article that was published in Playboy and it ended up being enormously popular. And it resulted in a couple of literary agents contacting me saying, hey, you should write a whole book. So I said, why not? Now, I couldn't write a whole book on cuckolding specifically because it turned out that had already been done in fact a colleague of mine dr david lay wrote this really amazing book a few years back called women who stray and the men who love them and david is a clinical psychologist who ended up interviewing dozens of couples around the united states who were living a cuckolding lifestyle and his book is well worth checking out if you kind of want to better understand why people are into cuckolding in the first place and sort of how those scenarios play out and how it affects people's relationships. But I started to think about, well, what can I do if I'm gonna write a book on my own? And one of the things I thought about was, well, maybe I'll write a whole book on sexual fantasies because as a sex researcher, this is a topic that had interested me for a really long time and I had a lot of unanswered questions about it. So, for example, in teaching my human sexuality courses, students would often ask me questions about sexual fantasies that I couldn't answer because there just wasn't research on it. So, for example, how many people have ever shared their fantasies with a partner? How many have acted on them? And what are their experiences like? I also got a lot of questions about what do our fantasies mean? Do they actually say anything about us? and so I got the idea to conduct this large-scale study on sexual fantasies and I thought I would try and answer a lot of these questions that had never been answered before and to try and do it in the context of a survey where I'm looking at a broad cross-section of the population as opposed to just looking at college students because most of the published research on sexual fantasies is based on college students and college students might not be the most representative group to look at if we want to better understand not just what people are fantasizing about, but also what our fantasies mean and how likely people are to engage and interact with them. So I laid the groundwork to conduct this really large study and it ended up taking me two years to collect all of the data. And here's the thing, it took a long time to collect this data because there's really almost no funding for sex research in the United States, unless you're studying things like STDs or things that have major public health implications. If you wanna study things like sexual fantasies or the positive side of sex, we just don't have grant funding available for it, uh, unless you're going to some private organizations. So I had to collect all of the data on my own without any funding. And I wanted to get this very large, very diverse sample. And so that's why it really took a long time to to gather all this information. But in the end, I surveyed 4,175 Americans. They completed this massive questionnaire where I asked them 369 different questions, many of them about their favorite sexual fantasy of all time, but also about hundreds of people, places, and things they might have ever fantasized about. I also gave them extensive batteries of questionnaires about their personalities, their sexual histories, and their demographic backgrounds so that I could better understand who was completing the survey and also look at how our fantasies are related to different aspects of the self. So once I collected all of that data, I wrote up a book proposal that my agent, went and shopped around and we got a deal with a publishing house. And I worked on putting the book together for about a year and then ended up losing that book contract because the publisher fell into some financial trouble. And so that was a very demoralizing experience because I had already invested a couple of years at that point into collecting the data and writing up the book. So we were kind of back at square one at that point. So my amazing agent went and resold the book to a new publisher, and I'm really thrilled with how it ended up turning out, but that still took another year from the time we made the new deal till the book was actually published. So all in all, this was about a four-year process, but I'm thankful with the end results. Now, there's a lot that I learned in the process of writing this book on sexual fantasies. So here are some of the key things that that came out of that survey. First, when I looked at people's favorite sexual fantasies of all time, I had people write them out in narrative form. And some people said, a lot (laughs) but other people their their fantasy descriptions were quite short. I also asked people to sum up their favorite fantasy of all time in a single word and what I did with those single word fantasy descriptions was to do a thematic analysis and sort of categorize them into common themes and what I found was that there were really seven distinct categories of fantasies that emerged. These categories were first, multi-partner sex, which included threesomes, foursomes, and moresomes, basically anything involving more than two people at the same time. The second big category was what I call power control and rough sex, so these were the BDSM sorts of fantasies where people are playing with power differentials or they're mixing pleasure and pain in some way. The next category was what I called novelty adventure and variety. So these are fantasies where people are experimenting with new and different things, whether that's having sex in a new position or in a new location in the home, or just mixing it up in some way. The fourth category were the taboo fantasies. So these are the fantasies where people are thinking about doing something that is socially or culturally forbidden. This is where a lot of the sexual interests that are often categorized as paraphilias come into play. So these are things that we tend to think of as being somewhat unusual or rare. Uh, So, for example, fetish interests tend to fall into this category, but also things like voyeurism and exhibitionism, for example, where people are spying on other people who are undressing or having sex, or they are exposing themselves or having sex in front of an audience. The fifth category is what I call passion, intimacy, and romance. So these are really fantasies about meeting deeper emotional needs. One of the most common ways that people fantasize about this is by imagining themselves being intensely desired by someone else. It turns out that in a lot of our fantasies, people have this strong want or need to be wanted. And so that's a a big part of a lot of our sexual fantasies. Next, we had the non-monogamy fantasies. So these are fantasies about being in some type of sexually open relationship. So that could involve being polyamorous, or it could involve swinging, where people are swapping sexual partners. This would also be where the cuckolding fantasies would come into play, where people are fantasizing about watching their partner having sex with someone else, or having sex with someone else while their partner is watching them. And then the final category was what I called gender bending, and homoeroticism. So these are fantasies about pushing the boundaries of your gender role or sexual orientation in some way. So for example, this could include a cisgender person who fantasizes about cross-dressing, or it could include somebody who identifies as heterosexual, but who has same sex fantasies. There were also some people who identified as gay or lesbian who had heterosexual fantasies. So it can go in the other direction too, but it was more common for uh, heterosexually identified people to have same-sex fantasies than it was for gay and lesbian people to have heterosexual fantasies. But so those were the seven major categories that emerged. I later conducted a follow-up study to the study that went in to tell me what you want, where I surveyed about 2,000 adults and I asked them about their favorite sexual fantasies again and then I asked them about the extent to which those seven themes were present in their favorite fantasy of all time. And people could select all that applied because people's fantasies can combine these different elements in many ways and what I found was that those seven themes accounted for between 96 and 97 percent of people's favorite fantasies of all time which tells us that there is something to this categorization structure that I developed and I have a follow-up study uh, based on those data that was just accepted for publication in archives of sexual behavior so there's an academic version of this uh, research that is coming out soon but that's one of the key things I learned was that there were really these seven major categories of sexual fantasies Something else that I also discovered in the process of my work was that our sexual fantasies seem to say a lot about us. So I found that there were lots of connections between what it was that people were fantasizing about and what their personality traits are. So, for example, when you look at the big five personality traits, uh, these are five personality traits that are thought to be present, present to some degree in everyone's personality these are openness to experience which is kind of basically your willingness to try new and different things conscientiousness which is kind of how detail oriented you are and how much of a planner you are extroversion which is how outgoing and sociable you are agreeableness which is kind of how much care and concern you have for the well-being of others and neuroticism which is kind of the extent to which you deal well with stress and how emotionally stable you are i found that all five of these traits were linked to the sexual fantasies that people reported having so for example people who are high in openness to experience fantasize more about just about everything also for people who are high in extroversion those very outgoing people they have more fantasies about group sex and non-monogamy so They're not only social in real life, they're pretty social in their sex lives as well. For conscientiousness, this is that trait that's all about being detail-oriented. These individuals tended to be much more detail-oriented in their sexual fantasies. So for example, they spent a lot more time describing the scene or setting in which their fantasies took place. Conscientious people also tended to see themselves in their fantasies more realistically, more accurately than other people did. So this was something I found to be particularly interesting, was that most people changed themselves in their sexual fantasies in some way, whether that was changing their body appearance or their genitals or their personality. Conscientious people were the least likely to make those sorts of changes. Next, when we look at agreeableness, this is that trait that's all about having care and concern for other people, these individuals place more emphasis on their partner's pleasure in their sexual fantasies, so that care and concern extends to having more care and concern in the bedroom for how their partners are feeling. And then lastly, neuroticism. This is that trait where it speaks to how well you deal with stress and how emotionally stable you are. I found that for people who are high in neuroticism, that is, these are people who don't deal well with stress, they tended to be among the least likely to fantasize about trying new and different things. So they seem to play it really safe in their sexual fantasies because trying new things is something that can be stressful. So these individuals seem to be making an effort to not push themselves out of their comfort zone too much. So those were some of the things I found when I looked at personality. I also found that people's attachment styles were very much related to their sexual fantasies as well. And your attachment style is sort of the general way that you approach sexual and romantic relationships. And people can have what we call a secure attachment style where they tend to be pretty confident and secure in themselves but people can also have what we call anxious attachment styles where they're much more insecure and they tend to have a lot of fear that their partner is going to abandon them or leave them. Perhaps not surprisingly people who were very anxiously attached were kind of like the people who were neurotic in that they tended to play it pretty safe in their sexual fantasies. And they also tended to have more fantasies about reassurance and validation. I also looked at the extent to which people's fantasies are related to their previous sexual experiences. And I found a lot of interesting things there. For example, the activities that took place the very first time someone had sex were very likely to be The subject of their recent sexual fantasies. So if an activity took place the first time you had sex you tended to have more fantasies about that activity no matter what it was. I also found that people who describe their early sexual experiences as being more unusual. So if they had an unusual element to their earlier sexual experiences, they tended to have more unusual fantasies later on as well. So that suggests that there seemed to be some linkages between early life experiences with sex and then the types of things that tend to turn us on later on in life. One of the other things that I found that was really interesting in my work was when I looked at the connection between fantasy and reality. I found that about half of my participants said that they had shared their favorite fantasy of all time with a partner before, but only about 20% of my participants, about one in five, said that they had ever acted on their favorite sexual fantasy before. That was really interesting because 80% of my participants said that they wanted to act on their favorite sexual fantasy at some point. So four in five say they want to act on their fantasy, but only one in five have ever actually done it before, which says that there is this pretty big gap between fantasy and reality. Now, one of the really fascinating things is that the people who had shared and acted on their fantasies reported the most satisfying sex lives, they reported the happiest relationships, they reported the fewest problems in the bedroom, and they also reported that acting on their fantasies was something that either met or exceeded their expectations, and further, that it ended up improving their relationship, that it brought them closer to their partner, which suggests that there might be some real benefits to getting more in touch with our sex Sexual fantasies and sharing them with our partners and incorporating them into our sex lives so that's one of the things that I get into in the book is kind of how do you go about sharing your fantasies with a partner in a safe and productive way and also if you're thinking about acting on them what do you need to know so that's one of the things I try to do is to give people the tools the skills that they need for communicating about their fantasies and if they're interested in going the extra mile and acting on it giving them the things that they need to know and take into account to ensure that everything is safe, healthy, and consensual. So that's a bit about what I learned in the process of writing this book. And writing this book is something that also really fundamentally changed my life in a lot of different ways. And not just because it change the way that I think about sexual fantasies, but also just in terms of the broader impact on my career. Because when I wrote this book, I thought that this is gonna be the first of many books that I write. And I had actually just left academia at that point. I had been a college professor for 10 years and I decided I wanted to go out and try something new and different. And it worked out well to, to do that at a point when I had this new book coming out. But once the book came out, it turned out that that led to all of these other career opportunities that I had never anticipated. And this started with being invited to do a lot of public speaking on the subject of sexual fantasies. So I started to get invitations to teach workshops for sex therapists on sexual fantasies. And it turns out that therapists often have clients who come in who have concerns about their fantasies. And like I said, there's not really a lot of research out there on sexual fantasies beyond college students. So there was this really big market for sex education about fantasies specifically. So that's something that I found was a really useful direction where I could take this work that I had done and apply it in this practical, useful way where therapists could go and use it in their clinical practice. But I also started to get invitations to do other types of public speaking where I could talk about this work to a general audience. So I've been putting on these workshops and lectures all across the country, all on the science of fantasies. This book also led to a lot of consulting opportunities with sexual health and wellness companies because our fantasies and and having extensive knowledge of them can help, for example, in terms of developing new sex toys that can help people to live out their fantasies. So that's something else that also emerged from this as well. So that's something that I would encourage anyone who is thinking about being an author to keep in mind is that when you're writing a book, think about what you can do to to sort of build a whole brand around it. And this is useful for a couple of reasons. One is that the more offshoots you have from the book, the more you can come back and support the book. And increasingly, authors are expected to do more and more of the marketing work on their own these days because publishers are just expecting authors to to carry more of the weight. So the more that you can take and expand and build upon this book, the better it will be for your career as an author in terms of getting future book deals and and so forth. For me, I had absolutely no vision for what I was going to do beyond just writing a book. So that's something that I will definitely keep in mind with, with future books that come out is what are the other potential applications of this work that I'm doing. Something else that happened in the course of writing this book that really changed my life was that I ended up recording an audiobook version of Tell Me What You Want. And funny story there, I actually had to audition to record my own audiobook. You might think that as an author of a book, that you'd automatically be able to do the audiobook. But it turns out that, you know, publishers are very cognizant of whether somebody can tell an engaging story with their voice and whether they can really perform with their voice. And so I had to audition for it. And fortunately, I got the job, but it was one of the most grueling <laughs> and physically and emotionally demanding experiences of my life. Um, because I ended up having to sit in a studio for 17 hours split over the course of three days recording this book. And every time that you stumble over a word, you have to go back. Every time your stomach grumbles or your voice starts to get raspy, you know, again, you have to stop and go back. And so even though the final product is somewhere between seven and eight hours, it was really a 17 hour process to get (laughs) that final edited version. So this was something that was very emotionally and and physically demand it because it's it's taxing to sit there in a studio and just talk for hours and hours on end and to try and be engaging with your voice but that actually taught me a lot about myself and what i'm capable of and it also ended up making me much more comfortable and confident in my own voice i'm somebody who spent a lot of my life being pretty quiet because i just i wasn't comfortable with my voice and i always hated the way that it sounded, but that really helped me to learn to love my voice and learn what I'm capable of doing with it. So it was really this important and powerful growth experience that I ended up getting out of that. Something else that you know I also learned about myself was I started teaching these workshops, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and some of these workshops that I taught were eight hour workshops for two days. So it was a 16-hour workshop of me standing in front of a group of people trying to inform them about the science and research in this area and trying to keep their attention. And I have to say that was also one of the most (laughs) emotionally and physically exhausting experiences of my life. But again, it taught me what I'm capable of. So that's one of the things that I'm really thankful for in the, the process of writing this book is that I had all of these opportunities that challenged me and led to growth. And now it's given me just a lot more confidence in myself and has given me more ideas for things that I can do uh, in my future career. One other thing that has happened as a result of writing this book is that it's led to an insane number of media interviews and opportunities where I've gone on television shows and radio programs and podcasts uh, talking about my work and this has now spanned two years since the book initially came out and I continue to be amazed that sexual fantasies are, just have this constant steady stream of interest in them. But I think that really speaks to the importance of this topic because almost everyone has sexual fantasies and has them often and a lot of people have a lot of shame and guilt and anxiety and embarrassment stemming from their sexual fantasies. So I found that I I just have this constant opportunity to help continue to educate people about fantasies and to help reduce a lot of that shame and anxiety with the hope being that it can help a lot of people to improve their intimate lives and relationships and i'm fortunate to say that i've had many people who have reached out to me personally because they've heard one of the interviews that i've given or they've read my book or uh, they've come across my work in some other way and they've told me how it really helped them in their sex life and relationship. And that's really the, the single most gratifying thing that I can hear in this line of work that I do, is to know that I did something that helped someone else. So that's a bit about the story behind the book. <laughs> How it changed my life, and also some of the key things that I learned about sexual fantasies. If you want to learn even more, I highly encourage you to check out the paperback edition of Tell Me What You Want, which launches this month, but it's also available in other formats for your reading and listening pleasure if you're interested in the ebook or audiobook. If you want to learn more about my work and stay up to date with it, please be sure to follow my blog, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com. I blog about the latest sex research several times per week, and you can also follow me on social media where I'm sharing things every day. I think that sex is one of those areas where almost all of us want to know more about it, but there are lots of sources out there that provide less than reliable information. So what I try to do in my work is to always provide scientifically based information about sex, because I think that's the best way to learn about what's going on, because it helps us to understand more of the diversity in human sexual expression, right? Because a lot of people who are out there providing sex advice are speaking based on only their personal experiences. And while there is value to that, we know that different things work for different people. Different people want different things. And so that's where the science is helpful because we can look at the responses of a broader group of people and help to understand that there's diversity and differences and different things work for different people. So thank you for listening. Um, and again, be sure to follow the blog, sexandpsychology.com to stay up to date on the latest podcasts and my latest posts. And be sure to check out Tell Me What You Want, now available in paperback. Thanks for listening.